small stakes practice for high stakes results. Here's what it'll look like. Brandon's going to be the negotiator, and Derek is going to be the talker. So at the beginning, you're going to be able to ask two questions to get you started, and from there forward, it's going to be only labels and mirrors. So after you label four, after I have done four or five labels with Derek, then we will start pointing to people in the room to continue the conversation with Derek. So once you get pointed at, you got to come up with a label or mirror. A great way to get picked is to look away. <laughs> All right, so uh, two questions at the very beginning. First question, what's your passion? Uh, coaching basketball. Coaching basketball. And then second question, what about coaching basketball makes you passionate? Uh, it provides me an opportunity with providing a positive male role model in the lives of guys that don't have it. Guys that don't have it? Yeah, I, I, uh, the, coach, the uh, community that I coached in a couple of years ago was a, um, a, an immigrant community, um, single parent homes, mostly led by women. Uh, a lot of times the guys that were on my team were the, were the oldest male in the house, so a lot of responsibility had been thrust upon them. And as a result, some of them, uh, straight off the straight and narrow, unless they were provided an opportunity to participate in organized sports, that's where I came in. It sounds like in a lot of ways these kids are kind of missing out on life. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was in I was in their spot, so to speak, when I was coming up. I didn't. I grew up in a house that didn't have a father. Um, in fact, he could walk through those doors right now, and I wouldn't know it was him. That's how early in my life that he left. So I was raised by a a a mother who had a heart of gold, and she worked very hard, but she didn't. She couldn't provide me with that male influence that I needed. And, but by the grace of God, I could have gone elsewhere. Sounds like you learned how to be pretty self-sufficient at an early age. I had to. You had to grow up fast. And uh, the things that were out there that snatched me off the streets, figuratively speaking, have been multiplied tenfold now uh, with these guys. So I know that they're either going to wind up dead, they're going to wind up incarcerated, or they're going to wind up like the next Shirley. Sounds like you really feel for the fact that what they're missing out on really isn't any fault of their own. It's not. And so for the two hours that I get them every day between the months of November and March, it provides me with an opportunity to um, provide them with some life skills that will make them better men because I think as a, as a male adult, it's incumbent upon me to do that. Label or mirror. Label or mirror. I want you to say it looks like, it seems like, it sounds like, and then give me what it looks like, seems like, sounds like. Intuitively, you know what to say. Now I want to make you say it. It looks like this is really important. Yeah, it is important to me. Let's face it. These guys are going to get their life lessons from somewhere. And if they're not getting it from me, they're going to get it from somebody in the streets. And then the people in the streets are usually going to send them in the wrong direction. Direction. Label or mirror? Mirror. Wrong direction? Into the mic wrong direction yeah so I mentioned earlier they could wind up incarcerated or they could wind up like Shirley and as an adult again my job is to make sure that nobody else becomes a Shirley label or mirror it's 
sounds like Shirley's important to you. I, I, I wasn't following that part. I had a legitimate question. What, what do you mean when you say Shirley? I didn't ask you to ask a question. I want you to label a mirror. Any question that you can ask can sound like Shirley? a mirror. Great. Yeah, Shirley was a um, young lady I met. She was seven years old at the time that I met her. And um, Shirley was a crack baby, which means when her mother was pregnant, she was continuing to ingest cocaine. Shirley was born addicted to cocaine. And she had this, the requisite uh, behavioral and cognitive issues that a baby addicted to cocaine would. So she was way behind in her development. They put her into foster care because the mother was not, the mother was not obviously competent to raise the child. So Shirley was put into foster care and that's when I met her, Label and Mirror. And you met her where? Not a question. Label or mirror. Any question that you can ask can be turned into a label. So it looks like, it seems like, it sounds like. Sounds like you had a great opportunity to, to, to run into this little girl at one time and it meant a lot to you. Subsequently, yeah, it, it was a great opportunity. At the time, I didn't see it as such. Because when I met her, her foster mother's boyfriend had taken the bottom end of a cane and shoved it in her mouth and broke her teeth out because she spilled toothpaste on the floor. And so when I think about my responsibility to the youth of today, it starts with how I saw Shirley the night that she was on the gurney in the hospital and I'm taking photographs of her injury. And this little girl that has had everything done to her is laying on the gurney showing me some cigarette burns on her forearm and she still had enough sunshine in her to, to smile and I said and I still have her picture on my desk with that smile and I said if this kid can go through all of that she needs a fighter and so my job is to fight for all the Shirley's of the world label or mirror it sounds like you believe this program can really make a difference in children's lives well it's it's a leap but my basketball program by extension will lessen the opportunity for kids to fall through the cracks either into jail or to have their lives impacted in a other negative ways. Now I'm going to stop there. You guys see how much information you can gather by just using labels and mirrors. If you will imagine the X that I stood on the floor represents, I like coaching basketball, right? How far off of that X did you move me? When I first said I like coaching basketball, figuratively or literally, some of you rolled your eyes and said, oh, another, another jockhead, another guy who's going to start talking about the virtues of Steph Curry, right? But what did you learn? About me. Travis said, I grew up without a father. What else did you learn? Specifically, what did you learn? That I help youth. Good. What else did you learn? I have a very big heart. Do I sound like somebody you want to do business with? Absolutely. A lot of behavioral things, how you respond to things. What do you mean? Uh, given a difficult situation, you 
took it and turned it into a positive. Good, good. What else did you learn? Want to give back. What else did you learn? I respect your mother. I respect my mother. What else? What inspired, you? what inspired me, uh, Monica said. So the point is, you move me off the X, you know a lot about me. Character-wise, behavior-wise. How much information did you give me? How much do I know about you? Nothing. Just using labels and mirrors. That's how strong they work. That's how powerful they are. So, that's what you guys are going to replicate in your one-to-ones. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair, you get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. Do your homework and the test is easy. It's a great quote from a gentleman that I recently met that I think is phenomenal. He's about training human beings. His name is Jeff Spencer and he trained Olympic gold medal winners and he trained Tour de France champions eight years in a row. Do your homework and the test is easy. What does this have to do with negotiation? We need opportunities to practice our negotiation skills on a regular basis. And the regular basis is the low stakes practice to give us the high stakes result. So the phone calls that we get each and every day, somebody calls us on the phone and says, have you got a few minutes to talk? Now, if you're black swan negotiation trained, you don't ask people that but that doesn't mean you don't get anywhere from two to 10 calls per day where somebody says to you on the phone, have you got a few minutes to talk? Now I wrote a piece for The Edge a couple of weeks ago that said, write down on a card next to your phone, the mirror, so that when somebody says, have you got a few minutes to talk, your mirror response would be a few minutes to talk. And they begin to give you a lot of information and you get some low stakes practicing because you don't even know what this conversation's about and you get a practice on mirror. So today we're gonna to practice on labeling. How do we get some low stakes practice in on labeling? Same situation, somebody calls on the phone and says, have you got a few minutes to talk? You say, sounds like there's something on your mind. Say it with a smile, say it nice and friendly because tonality is where expertise comes from. Tonality comes from mastery. Write down, on the same kind of a card that you put your mirror skill on, put it next to the phone. At the top, put caller. Have you got a few minutes to talk? And under that, you write, sounds like there's something on your mind. Because if they've called you and they ask you that question, it's a tell, if you will, that they do have something to talk about. And sounds like there's something on your mind will get you right to it and get you a good feel right away They'll have a great connection with the other person. They'll feel heard and understood, and you'll get to it in a hurry. All right. Have a fantastic day, and keep reading the edge and never split the difference. Hi, Chris. Uh, Chris, it was great hey, meeting James, you. How are you. I'm well, thank you. It was great meeting you the other week, and I loved your story about meeting Jack Welch and uh, asking him to come speak at your uh, class, I believe it was at SC. Um, by framing yeah. it in a no question. I want you to know I've been using that with my girlfriend. I've been using the, would it be ridiculous or would I be out of line if I asked for this? And I wanted to know if you had any other good no questions to ask that are really yes questions. You know, I don't, I, I don't, all of them. I mean, I don't ask any yes questions. Uh, I, ju I just know that people, it works better. It hits the brain better. So, you know, uh, is now a bad time to talk. Um, 
Is it a ridiculous idea? Have you given up on? Um, is it a bad idea? Are you opposed? Do you disagree? I mean, with, with the slightest amount of practice, you could switch any yes question into a no question. And it, it just works. It works better across the board. I mean, we don't, nobody in my company asks yes questions. Nobody, nobody asks, uh, have you got a few minutes to talk? Nobody says, do, do you agree? It just across the board. It makes it safer for people to answer. And also the real issue always is if there are problems, I want you to feel free to tell me what the problems are. And you're going to feel free to tell me those problems after no. So with just a little bit of practice, uh, and it takes practice. You know, all of these are, are, you know, get your practice reps in in the low-stakes conversations. And pretty soon the stuff starts Starts flowing out of your mouth. I'm uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'm I'm in a uh, I'm making a pitch in a hotel for a room upgrade, and I don't got any room upgrades. But I've worked so much on no oriented questions, and because like I am pushing this guy hard for something extra that I'm not paying for, and finally he, I says, "Well, is it ridiculous for you to make it up for me at the bar?" And he's like, "He's like, no, no." And he goes and gets a bunch of free trick drink coupons for the bar. So, you know, no oriented questions is a great one to practice. You'll find it'll bail you out when you're trying to get free drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Thanks. Everybody's desperate in uh, just asking this question because I notice you have uh, this audience has a lot of discipline. Everybody's trying to practice negotiation on a regular basis. And the first challenge since the pandemic earlier this year is that people sort of lost touch with that daily practice. They really want to know like how I, I saw examples, how to negotiate at Starbucks, how to negotiate with a, a travel vendor or agency. But what's your advice right now in the pandemic that people can continue to hone in on their skills and practice their negotiation skills at home? Well, you know, we use it with everybody we communicate with. We use it with each other. I mean, one of the questions that we all get a lot is, you know, what if you're up against a black swan train negotiator? You know, and, and that's fine. I mean, you know, Brandon asked me all the time, is, this, is it a ridiculous idea? Uh, you know, are you against? Um, Derek asked me all the time, I can't believe how stupid you are. Stuff like that. I mean, we're... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's going to be one of those days. But, yeah, I mean, what do you guys think? Am I crazy? No, and I, I think you're, you're right on the money. I mean, we every opportunity to communicate is an opportunity to practice. And, you know, as of late, one of the ways we've been directing people is if you're still paying utilities, right, you got utility bills. Those are great people to call up and, and use your skills on and, and get your bills down, right? That's one perfect way to practice. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing is the foundation, where this stuff came from, the world of hostage and crisis negotiation. 95% of the jobs that we did were on the phone. We weren't having, we didn't have contact, physical contact with the people that we were dealing with. So the fact that people are out of their normal environments and they don't have that regular human to human contact should not diminish the opportunities that they have to practice the skills via zoom calls or via regular phone calls. The environment has just changed slightly, but this is the, all of our stuff is predicated on hostage negotiation and we were rarely ever face to face. Mm. Yeah. My, 
I love that. Thank you for clarifying. So everybody who's watching, you know, start negotiating, start practicing right away. Which are the skills that you teach? Uh, do people generally find most difficult to learn and why? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious to hear what Derek has to say on this, because I got a couple of ideas. Derek, you know, what, what's, what's your perspective? Uh, I think you know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the accusations audit. Yeah. Hands down, the most effective skill that we have, the most potent, the most powerful, hands down, the most difficult to absorb and execute simply because when you talk about the black swan skills being counterintuitive and being awkward, um, the accusations audit is awkwardness on steroids and because you're pointing a negative light back at yourself. And when you point a negative light at yourself, you're making yourself uncomfortable. And when you're uncomfortable, what you want more than anything else is to be comfortable again. So that's where we find a significant amount of the pushback is with the accusations audits, because it's hard to take that negative light and point it at yourself and saying, this is what you're probably thinking about me. And it's all negative stuff. And so getting people to overcome that discomfort and execute anyway is probably the biggest challenge. Yeah. Good brain. Yeah, I, there's nothing Derek said that I would disagree with. However, I'm going to give you the classic negotiator's answer as far as what's <laughs> hardest to learn. It depends. <laughs> and a lot of it just depends on the individual. And so if you're part of the group that has read the book and have started trying to execute on your own, the thing that really is like the sticking point is probably the accusations audit. Right. If you're a novice and you're just getting into it and you're just starting to learn, people really struggle with labels and, and really on the side of executing them at their highest degree. You know, like surface labels are, are pretty easy for people to wrap their mind around. Seems like price is important to you. Right. But being able to construct a label that actually identifies the motivation behind how they got to this price point, that's a little bit more difficult. Labeling things that aren't actually said in the negotiation you know, is 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 tough. It's 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 a, it's a hard thing, and it, again, just takes practice. But yeah, it, you know, it depends. It depends on what, who they are, or how how much knowledge they have, and and what they deal with. Yeah, Chris, do you want do you want to add anything else? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, so much on it depends. You know, situation drives strategy, like Brandon likes to say. Where are you in your journey? Mm -hmm. um, labels, uh, one of the first things to get over the hump with, you, you get to labels and depending upon how comfortable you are with calling out negatives and then being proactive. And that, that leads right into the accusations audit, you know, the fear of that. I mean, probably the fear there is the biggest, that, that mm -hmm. that's the single biggest fear-based obstacle there. And simultaneously, if you're getting good at labels, making a jump from labels into summaries hard. Because, you know, we're and we teach people really hard, you know, to go silent, to go dead silent. We used to call it effective pauses and never split the difference. Book we got coming out collaboratively, Brandon and I and a couple of other people are working on um, in in the spring. It'll be out late spring, early, early summer. Um, we're changing effective pauses to dynamic silence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, getting people to go dead silent. Like some people feel like they're going to burst into flames before they could go dead silent. 
Well, then if we get you there, then we want to teach you summary and summary is firing everything. Summary is just letting go with everything. And that's no dead silence at all. So it's kind of, where are you in your journey? And each, each step of the way is going to take you to a new level of the game. You know, it's, a, it's like a game and, uh, and it's all fun. As soon as you embrace how much fun it could be, it's really cool. Hmm. So funny, my friend, uh, Michael O'Brien, also part of my mastermind group, really likes Brendan's jacket, first of all. I think he looks exceptionally handsome today. Um, hey, hey, work. hey, thank you. Oh, hey, sorry, Chris. You are... <laughs> Take it easy. Um, and uh, I agree, silence is the toughest thing for me to practice as well as for, for Michael there. Um, I remember going through an exercise as part of LTMBA. Uh, by Seth Godin. And I remember that before we respond to anything, we have to count to five seconds or three seconds. They felt like hours. Um, how it was very awkward, uh, a lot of resistance. So how do you practice? Like, how do you give yourself that patience? Oh, that's your brain. Well, you know, it's a similar philosophy. You know, we, we talk about people counting Mississippis or counting one thousands. But exactly to your point, Faye, I mean, it's creating an intentional void in the conversation is difficult to sit in. And that's really what it's designed to do. If you set up your dynamic silence properly, ideally it, re it reveals a black swan at the same time. But that's, that's exactly, that is very hard. And counting is, is one of the great mechanisms to kind of keep yourself in your chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very hard. I mean, I remember the, since the pandemic, like washing your even washing your hands while saying happy birthday, those 15, 20 seconds just feel so long when you actually measure it. So you got employees that, again, are not listening to what you say. They're not executing. They're not batteries included. Right. They don't take initiative. They essentially wait for the boss to do this thing before they take action at all. And so what do you do? And so some of this, I would say, is going to be solved by an accusations audit. What is causing them to not execute in the way that is most desirable? Some of that's going to be based on what's going on in your environment. And so it might have to do with fairness. It might have to do with they don't feel like they're being put on the right projects or they feel like whatever's being assigned to them is beneath them or the way that they're being assigned is they may see it as being disrespectful. It could be any number of things, but going in with an accusations audit of you probably feel this way is going to leave you in one or two places. You're going to say, you know what boss, that's exactly right. This is the way I wish that it worked out. Or they're going to say, boss, that's not actually it at all. It's this other thing. What does that tell you? you're going to be better informed by leading with the accusations audit because you're either going to be exactly on the money or they're going to say, no, that's not actually how I see it. I see it like this, boss. This is what I need you to know as your employee. Any, any additional thoughts that you would add to that specific one there, Derek? Um, setting your clear expectations, summarizing the conversation, and once you have got – an understanding slash agreement as to what the execution of whatever looks like, you're going to want to, you're going to want a rule of three. Uh, there are three types of yeses that you get from anybody and that's counterfeit um, confirmation and commitment. And so once you've come to that understanding, that's your first yes. You're going to want to hit that yes at least twice more to un to make sure that you guys are on the same page. 
a yes without a how is worthless. So when they say, yes, boss, got it, I'm on my way, and they go out and execute and they don't come back, it's ultimately your fault because you didn't get the confirmation yes and you didn't get the commitment yes. How do you get those commitment and confirmation yeses? Just simply label, mirror, or paraphrase what has just been said. They tell you, boss, I'm going to have this project to you by next Tuesday. Sounds like next Tuesday is a better day for you. Yes, that's your second yes. Your third yes is going to be, so if I understand you correctly, next Tuesday, by Monday, by Monday night, you will have all of this thing wrapped up. And on Tuesday morning when I come in, it'll be in my inbox waiting for my approval. Something to that effect. That's your third yes. And so once you've gotten them to, those are public promises. And it's very hard, not impossible, but it's hard for people to go back on a promise that has been verbalized, that has been vocally stated. So when they when they speak it into the air, it's, it's like going into a, uh, a tablet with a chisel. Yes, tone is going to be important. Again, circumstance drives your strategy. Generally, your tone in a situation with the accusations audit is, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily want to have a curiosity tone because the things you lay in your accusations audit are things that you're sure of. You probably feel like you're getting passed up when you shouldn't be. It might even seem like, you know, you've been ignored or you, your, your real talents haven't been taken into account, right? You want to say it as almost a declarative tone. You want to say it as though you know it to be truth. This is how, almost, almost to say, this is how I know you see the world. When you wake up in the morning, the sky looks green, the sun is purple, and there's giraffes in your yard. Right. That might not be true from your point of view. That doesn't change what they see. So, yeah, declarative tone. You want them to know that you see it also. These are also things that I see to be true. When they have a valid argument, but it's not uh, it's not appropriate for the specific situation, find out what's the motivation. Seems like you have a reason for saying X and find out what their thinking was. And then I would follow that with a no oriented question. Would a bad idea, would it be a bad idea if I explained why that's not appropriate in this instance? Again, you're deferring, you're asking permission to give an explanation. And then you lay it out. And then you lay out what would be appropriate for that situation. How do you lay that one out? With another no-oriented question. Are you against? And then fill in the blank. What is appropriate for that situation? So I would listen to their side. Label, mirror, paraphrase. And then come up with a no-oriented question. Are you against? Whatever it is for the appropriate situation. Would it be a bad idea if I explained to you why this was not appropriate? In regards to um, the survey results, a new manager recently promoted, unfortunately got promoted over someone in the organization that, and that someone felt like they deserved a promotion because they've been around longer. But the reality is this individual got promoted because they're go-getter, they're crushing it, they're killing it. And so the residual effects of that is they're dealing with a coworker who is now a subordinate that is now being very disruptive. 
doesn't want to have a decent conversation, sees them probably as the enemy in the office because they got passed up by this person. And so, Derek, what would you offer this person as far as being able to solve that with this individual who is now a subordinate, who seems to be very obstinate because they feel like they got they got passed up for the promotion that deserve that they deserve. All right, so uh, there's a lot there to work with, uh, but a thumbnail sketch of what it, of what it should look like would be uh, you're going to have to address it. Uh, you're going to have to address the counterproductive behavior because it impacts your credibility as a leader. So you're going to have to have that one on one. How are you going to start that one on one? You're going to hit them with the accusations audit. I know that you uh, you, you don't have uh, a lot of faith in me as a leader. I know you think that I'm probably not worthy of the position. Blah, blah, blah. So you're going to string them out. And there's a lot there that you can throw into an accusations audit. Uh, last week during the meeting. I ask you to introduce yourself and you refuse to do so. What caused that? Get the response, response label, label paraphrase, paraphrase response. Again, you're showing that tactical empathy and then you're going to hit them with the, with the eye, with the eye message to address the counterproductive behavior without sounding accusatory. When you, display that type of insubordination in front of others, I feel frustrated because it undermines me as a leader. When you, I feel because, is a perfect way for you to tell this person, knock it off, I'm not gonna stand for it anymore. And then the conversation can be switched into what the, your relationship is going to look like going forward, what the ramifications are going to be if the behavior is repeated in the future. So again, you see the sequencing. Tactical empathy first, your goal and objective last. In the, in the middle of that, we sandwiched in an I message, which is used to confront counterproductive behavior without sounding confrontational, without accusing the other side. You're telling them to knock it off without actually using the words, knock it off. not want to refute any of your accusations, right? You don't want to say, ah, you probably feel like I haven't given you a fair shake. But as your boss and having all these other things to consider, you know, what you didn't see was that all this other data that I had to look at in order to make the decision, right? That's, that's refuting your accusations audit. So exactly to your point, you never want to put your butt in somebody else's face. I'm sure you feel this way, but this is actually what it is. That's what you want to leave out. If but and or because comes to mind during your accusations audit, you probably just want to replace it with silence. Don't don't say don't let the words come out of your mouth. Don't refute them because it's what those words do is it, it negates everything that came before. Hey, Sandy. Thank you, uh, Chris and Shay and Kayla for having us today. Um, I am wondering if you can shed some light, Sandy, on as a woman in the workplace, I found that a lot of times if there's a tough situation and um, your tone stays good, but you're still dealing with in a, in a tough manner, that uh, as a woman, you can come across and really be labeled as being bitchy. 
right. um, instead of just tough, where a guy with the same tone and the same situation would just be, you know, everybody would just say, hey, he did a great job, you know, he took authority or whatever. And I'm just wondering if you have any recommendations on um, how to avoid that label and and um, still come across well. Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually hear this quite often. Um, women say something that when it comes out of their mouths, for whatever reason, it seems more assertive. But when a man says it, it seems to be taken okay. Um, if you're controlling your tone, which it sounds like um, you're doing a good job of controlling the tone, a lot of times it's the structure that you're using. With the skill that you're using, make sure you're using the right structure. So if you're using um, a label, if you're trying to find out information, instead of asking a direct question, use that label with a nice tone. It might get you a little bit further. If you're having the overall problem, say, in a meeting or in a negotiation or in a tough conversation, try using an accusations audit first and mitigate that negative. You can say, um, you're probably gonna think what I'm saying is very assertive. Pause for a few seconds and then say what you're gonna say. Because if you put out there, they may think you're being assertive, you're demonstrating that you understand that they have that thought process going on in their mind. And when you do that, you mitigate it. You clear it from their mind. So um, they can't come back in a few minutes and say, you're being too assertive or you're being bitchy because you pretty much told them up front, you thought they were gonna think that anyway. So it mitigates that thought keeps them from using that against you later in the conversation. So um, a lot of women that I've spoken with have had this issue. And when I suggested to use the accusations audit before they speak, um, it actually gave them a little bit of a leg up and they found that people were not considering them quite as assertive because they were putting it out there first. Thank you, that was really helpful. I do have one other question if it's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, what is your biggest recommendation for helping with times when you have tone issues? Okay, tone, tone is something that you deal with from the day you're born, I think. I remember when I was younger, my mom saying, watch your tone of voice, and, and I would think, I don't have a tone. And when I look back on it now, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I so had a tone. When I was that teenager, I definitely had a tone. So trying to get a hold of your tone of voice is something that takes a little bit of practice, especially if you're trying to go into that late night FM DJ voice, especially if you've listened to Chris do the voice on the masterclass, because the tone of Chris's voice, when he goes down to the late night FM DJ voice, it has a whispery quality to it. And as a woman, you want to avoid that whispery quality. Um, it, it sends the wrong message. So instead, what you need to concentrate on is kind of practicing with your diaphragm. And especially when you're in a stressful situation, because if you're if you sit up straight and you elongate your diaphragm and you tilt your chin up just a little bit, your voice tends to get a little bit higher. And I'm doing it right now as we talk, if you can tell your voice gets a little bit higher. So when you want to go down to that late night FM DJ voice, you want to shrink down into your stomach a little bit and lower your chin and your voice is naturally going to drop a few octaves. And if you notice, that's what I just did. So to get into that late night FM DJ voice, drop your chin, let your, your body fall down relaxed, and then slow down your rate of speech. And that's the way you're actually going to get to the late night FM DJ voice. That is an appropriate place for women to be with it. Now, um, if while you're doing this late night FM DJ voice, you get triggered a little bit, 
You just have to remember to maybe tighten your core because if you tighten your core, your abdominal muscles, it'll keep you hunched forward just a little bit, which will help you control that tone and keep it down in a lower octave. Upward inflection and downward inflection. Now you're gonna need to do it opposite of what you think. And I'll give you an example. We're on a coaching call from a previous training a couple of months ago, and someone is really pushing back against one of the things that we said will work. Now, what you guys are going to find is we'll tell you it works, and you're going to sit there and you're like, okay, okay. And a little bit later, when we ask you to do it, you'll say, I can't do that. That's not going to work. So when you do that, it's my gut instinct to say to you, so when I told you before that it worked, you thought I was wrong. Now that's downward inflection. And what's my tone of voice telling you that I'm thinking about you at that time? That tone of voice is saying, you're an idiot. <laughs> so instead, I say it, so when, you told, when I told you before that it worked, you thought I was wrong? Now, that felt completely differently, right? And that's how your tone of voice can go from an accusation to, in a way, it's thought-provoking. And my tone of voice the second time will cause you to actually think about it. And I got the reaction that I wanted from the, the person we were coaching, they kind of went, they went, oh, no. Because I knew that my tone of voice was going to have their impact on their ability to process the information. And that's a mastery move. When you want, probably when you want to inflect down, when you really want to, it's probably, you should, you should inflect up. Because you're creating thoughts, as Brandon says over and over again, you're creating emotional moments in the other side. Most of those emotional moments that you're creating is you're trying to get people to think about stuff in a positive and constructive way. You're trying to get them to rethink in a positive and constructive way. You're trying to point out when you think they're wrong, and especially when you think they're wrong, that's when your tone is going to kill you. And you're going to want to switch it up. And that's where the mastery comes in. And with practice, you'll get it. But without practice, you won't get it. And I don't know how many of you noticed, but in the prep session with each one of the volunteers... I'm really working hard at an encouraging tone of voice. And I don't know if anybody was looking at my prep then, but these three people are walking in in front of a room full of people expecting to get barbecued. Their brain is probably already shutting down, and that is the last thing that collectively is an instructional team that we need. And my team is relying on me to do as much as I can to get the three volunteers on point because they are getting ready to get punched right in the face. 
So my tone in each one of those briefing sessions was very specific to be encouraging and upward inflecting and non-threatening because I need them thinking and working with me. And it was all tonality. We were showing you tone before we even got into the exercise. But those are the two quick issues. If you want to inflect down, there's a pretty good chance you should inflect up. Just practice it a few times and you'll get it. Hello. Uh, Hello. Read your book. Got your uh, black swan manual right here. Uh, Use it a couple of times. Oh, very no good. only right. question. What do you do when you get a yes? Um, specifically, you know, I asked at pizza parlor. They made, they made a wrong pizza for me. They closed. They went back the next day and I used, uh, is it ridiculous to ask for a refund? And uh -huh. unfortunately, I got a yes. It is ridiculous. Cool. So look, I mean, that's confirmation. It's hard for people to say yes. You know, I, 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 might, fo I might follow up for with what makes it ridiculous. Because mm -hmm. your, okay. your gut instinct is like, if you're going to follow it up, um, your gut instinct is going to be like, why is it ridiculous? And unfortunately, why it makes people defensive you got to be really careful. Why is this surgical strike? You don't want people to get be getting defensive inadvertently. Um, now, so are, now, are we in this? What? What are you, are you in this for? The practice? You in this to get your okay. money back? What? What? Because mm -hmm. how much? How much was the pizza? Yeah, the pizza was uh, you know negligible in price, uh, but I was looking for a refund, um, and uh, eventually we did settle. You know, it wasn't the price I wanted, but just to kind of understand the tactic of getting a yes to a no or any question, you know, that where happens. do you go from there? It happens. All right. So at that point in time, if you're going to proceed, then I would mm -hmm. look at simply as a learning journey. Unless you got like a million dollars literally on the line, the only value to proceeding is for a learning experience. You know, Whatever you're making an hour now, what and whatever's at stake, you, you're not doing it for the money. You might be doing it for the experience. Make yourself a better negotiator. Practice a little more empathy. So, if they say it is ridiculous, what makes mm -hmm. it ridiculous? Or potentially, now we got some little accusations audit stuff. You familiar with our accusations audit, right? Yes. Yes. All right. Throw some of that out for me. Give me. Give, give me. Do do a little. Uh, a little free uh, scat, a little bit. Isn't that what they say in, in jazz? You got a scat, scat an accusation yeah, audit. <laughs> so an accusation audit. Um, looking at the chapters here. No, 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 no cheat. You gotta give me off time. <laughs> I'm here. trying to cheat. So an accusation audit um, in this instant would um, would be stating the obvious. I assume. Um, you know. Uh, All I right. Saw let, the let me stop. Let me let me stop you a little bit. All right. So. If they hang up the phone or if they put mm -hmm. you on hold and they turn to one of their colleagues, what do they say about you? This guy is ridiculous. This guy is asking for yeah. a refund. And what does that make you in their eyes? So that would be a uh, probably someone who, who, who is less par or not... Um, on their level, you know, I'm probably, you know, assumed. You're pulling your punches. Uh, if, if, if you if you got a minimum wage dude at a pizza joint 
mm-hmm. who feels beaten up by you because you're asking for a refund the next day after you probably ate the pizza or probably gave it to your dog, you're a what? Yes, I am a cheapskate. Now you're on. Now you're on. So, okay. So I would probably do that for myself. Uh, It's another, I'm another pesky customer. Yeah, there you go. Now you're getting on it. You know, so I probably seem like I'm another cheapskate, pesky customer pushing you on. Mm -hmm. I probably don't realize, you know, you're, you know, you figure out, you know, I'm making more money than you are. You're, you're knocking yourself out on a pizza joint making minimum wage, your mom's yelling at you, your girlfriend's yelling at you, you're under all kind of pressure. And here's the self-centered dude who uh, probably eats caviar when he's not eating pizza, who's taking the time because he's such a cheapskate and so selfish. And, uh, you know, that that's an accusation sort of run. Like, what is you know, okay. their amygdala, what is their amygdala causing them to, to say about you? And so, yeah, I, the I'd, fear. Okay. I'd, I'd, go after, I'd go after that if I'm looking to learn. You know, okay. because the pizza parlor dude probably is some poor sap living in his parents' basement whose mom's yelling at him and his girlfriend wants to know when he's going to get out of the basement. You know, whatever whatever this dude is struggling with, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Through, if, you, if you're going to keep going, you know, do a little bit of a uh, tactical empathy exercise. And, Certainly. you know, who, who knows, you know, who knows where who knows where it might lead you. If nothing else, you get a little practice. Great. Um, so, uh, I work, uh, in risk and safety. We deal with a lot of customers. Um, and so I'm on the front line trying to ask uh, these customers new business. So, um, you know, one of the questions we would ask is, uh, you know, is it ridiculous for us to come take a visit and of course do a no, a, a uh, <clears throat> late night DJ voice in that one. Um, cause it's a, uh, just starting out or would you would, would you want to do an upward inflection for a no oriented question? That's a great question. I, and I also got I got a follow-up calibrated question for you. But, yeah, I, I do the upward inflection. Mm-hmm. I go, is it is it ridiculous for us to come out and take a visit? Mm-hmm. That's probably how I throw that baby out there. And the calibrated question would be what? It's a little bit of what I was talking about with Tage before. I think, you know, what stands in the way of us coming okay. out and doing an on-site? Because people are... Are always, you know, they got to figure out the obstacles. You know, I got, I got to, I got to schedule this. I got to talk to my boss. He doesn't like people coming mm-hmm. on site. You don't know me. You know, focus on solving obstacles. What stands in the way? Okay. And that, you know, that'd be that'd be follow up. I'd go with that. All right. Well, uh, this is all I really have prepared for you today. Uh, you said you had a calibrated question for me. Yeah. What stands in the way of us coming? Okay. That's it. Calibrated what question? Okay. Uh, what questions are basically designed principally, what question is principally designed to uncover obstacles? Okay. And that's so, how, uh, you know, that's how we prepare. All right. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for the question. Thank Good you. Stuff. Okay. So listening to understand is what we're getting at here. Okay. Listening is the most powerful tool in your toolbox. People don't realize that, but you don't get information if you're talking. So by itself, just listening to the other side can be persuasive because some people 
will go all day long, especially if they're at work and nobody listens to a thing that they say. So when you're in the negotiation with your counterpart and you're actually listening to what they have to say and you're labeling them and you're mirroring them and you're encouraging them to give you all kinds of information, they're feeling understood because in a negotiation, when you're trying to, um, use tactical empathy, you should be seeking to understand the other side before you expect them to understand you. That's the whole big thing about it. You're showing deference to the other side. The other side is the most important. It's not about you. Nothing is about you. Um, and we're, you don't look for common ground, okay? We're not big pushers of common ground. It's not going to matter if your son and their son both play t-ball together. It's not going to get you to an agreement faster. It's going to be like a little, just a, oh, you, your son plays t-ball. My son plays t-ball. That's not going to make them like you any better, honestly. Yeah, you have something something in common. Psh, doesn't matter. They, they have that in common with a million other people whose kids play t-ball. So common ground really isn't going to get you anywhere if there's not any kind of empathy behind it. So what we say is listen to what they have to say. Don't comment about yourself. The way I like to play it is I label and mirror someone and try to get as much information as possible from the other side, giving away as little as possible from me. That's just a tool that I use that helps me get to tactical empathy. Because it's very easy, even, even for those of us that have been using the skills for a long time and we're, we're, we're pretty well versed in this, it's very easy to get caught up in a conversation and all of a sudden, a lot of your stuff is being insinuated into the conversation. And if you're having some kind of a negotiation with a counterpart, you don't want that. Okay. You want information from them. That's how you find the black swans, encouraging the other side to talk. So you label, you mirror, you listen to what they say, which lets you get to a deeper label and a deeper mirror, or not a deeper mirror, a deeper, deeper label, which will potentially lead you to a black swan. That's how they get uncovered. Okay. The more you label, you get more information from the other side. That's when those unknown, unknown things are going to come out that will change the whole scope of the negotiation. You can't get that information if you're the one doing all the talking. Okay. You have to basically give the other side the, the, the chance to give you that information. Okay. So listening is how you do that. Never be mean to someone who can hurt you by doing nothing. That probably includes just about everybody. So be nice to everybody today. See how far that'll get you. Have an awesome day. The most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. I met the guy who started the website Post Secrets, and it was about sending in your secrets anonymously. He got a message, including a brand new Starbucks coffee cup, which proved that the guy worked at Starbucks. And the note said, I give decaf to people who are mean to me. Hmm. The most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. For those of you that think you might be developing a tolerance for caffeine, well, be nice to people today. Be likable. You're six times more likely to make a deal with somebody you like. Be likable. It increases your deal-making ability. Plus, 
When you're likable, you're in a better frame of mind, you're more positive, you're 31% smarter. So be likable, you increase your deal-making ability, you make yourself smarter, and you have a better day. The last impression is the lasting impression. What's more important than the first impression? The last impression. You can get away with a mediocre first impression. You can't get away with a mediocre last impression. Make a positive impression at the end. Say something that's true. Express positive regard. Express positive hope for a great outcome. Whatever it has to be. The last impression is the lasting impression. It seeds the next conversations. And it's what leaves the lasting impression. Make it a good one always sound like someone that they want to speak to. Now, what that sounds like from person to person is going to vary, right? We talked about a lot about that last time. And then a lot of what we're going to talk about today, get your barriers out of the way, right? If you, if you got a chance, right? Another sports analogy, let's say you're running track and there's literally hurdles on the track in front of you. If you have the opportunity to remove all the hurdles off the track before the race begins, a lot of us would probably choose to do so instead of making the race harder on ourselves by jumping those hurdles or trying to anyway, right? And in negotiation, it's not like in real life where the, all the hurdles are the same height and they're all fall over easily in case you tip them, right? In negotiation, the hurdles are of different sizes. And if you run into one, it might knock you down. Right. And so if we got an opportunity to remove those hurdles out of the way before we get started, why wouldn't we take it? And so if we sound like somebody who's easy, who they want to talk to, who they want to talk to, and that's how I'll make the distinction. That's someone who's easy to talk to. How do we sound like someone that they want to talk to? There's a fine line between the two. And then how do we remove those hurdles out of the way? And some, some of uh, you know, back to the cliches from the book. But some of this is very important for us staying out in front of those things. And the first thing about that is never be mean to someone that can hurt you by doing nothing, which the reality is, is pretty much every single person we ever interact with. They can all hurt us by doing nothing. And they're much more compelled to do so if we've been mean to them or they feel disrespected by us in any way. And then the other part of this, which I'm sure, you know, a lot of you already think, but you haven't necessarily heard us say, how would you speak to someone whose position or point of view you actually care about? And that's, that's, that's something I actually struggle with because I'm that type of person. I like to give advice, you know, especially people that I care about, right? I want to give them advice. I want to tell them how to solve it. I get caught up in problem solving mode. And when I do that, I know that I'm actually ignoring their point of view or positioning because I'm problem solving. I'm not actually listening at a deeper level. I'm trying to help them figure out how to solve it or how to help them see the solution as opposed to just listening deeper. And those are two very different things. So again, Keep those things in mind. It's much harder to get our barriers or our hurdles out of the way if we're not focused on how they're affected emotionally at a deeper level.
So, you know, compromise, splitting a difference, chances are you're going to water down both sides and it's just going to be a bad idea. And I guess because we got to talk about the FBI, like when, when you were with the FBI and being like their international lead kidnapping negotiator, undoubtedly an interesting time in your life. Uh, I, if, if you'd be open to it, you know, can you talk about one of the most perhaps challenging negotiations you ever experienced? Because this is interesting in the sense that, you know, without a doubt, you know, people now know you as the negotiation expert. But I imagine you've you know, you've honed those skills through very, very challenging negotiations over time. Well, one of the biggest ones, and um, uh, we talk about it in the book, uh, the Burnham Sabero case in the Philippines. Now, we we just come off of a kidnapping that went beautifully in that the hostage walked away. I mean, what we did was we – the great thing in negotiation is to create opportunities for good things to happen. You're not stalling for time. You're adding time. You know, create things – the opportunity for good things. In this particular instance, the bad guys, uh, we, we warm out with – the application of empathy, enough so that the hostage had the opportunity to simply walk away. No money was exchanged. And the bad guys weren't mad when it was all done. Um, the, the lead negotiator for the, for the kidnappers actually called the guy that I was coaching on the phone to congratulate him and basically pay his respects. Not in an angry way. So we got, we got another case uh, with a different faction of the same group. They, they've switched everything out. They kill an American within the first week and a half. Um, and they end up, they kill a bunch of people. I mean, they took over a dive resort. They killed people at the dive resort. They took a bunch of hostages. They sailed across the open ocean, 400 miles of ocean. They chopped off some more heads. There were some vicious guys. And then the thing ended up about 13 months later in a botched rescue attempt by the Philippine military where the re- two out of three remaining hostages were killed by friendly fire. I mean, it was just end to end. It was a train wreck. What I really learned in that, though, was uh, the negotiator that was the counterpart, he negotiated with us in good faith, and his team wasn't aligned behind him. You know, our philosophy that there's always a team on the other side. You can have a great relationship with your counterpart. You can genuinely read that your counterpart is being honest with you because as far as your counterpart knows, he or she really is. If you haven't taken into account the team behind them and find a way, found a way to involve them, then your counterpart is going to have the limbs sawed off behind them. It turns out that that happens in the private sector about half the time. Well, is a telecommunications company that we were talking with involved in discussions to train them in negotiations. And we found out that fully 50% of the deals that they sign, not just that, that they negotiate, but 50% of the deals they actually sign never never implemented. What does that mean? It means that the point of contact was out of touch with his own team, and he got the limb mm-hmm. sawed off behind him. I once had a salesperson refer to this as being single-threaded. This happened to us in the Philippines, and I, I was it, it caught us so off guard because we assessed our counterpart as to having legitimately made a deal, and our counterpart, when his side failed to back him up, he was actually genuinely humiliated. He was embarrassed. You know, when he did all the things that somebody does when they're really embarrassed at the position that they're left in. So that taught me to take into account the team on the other side and how do we adjust accordingly. So on that note, how, 
what are some ways to adjust accordingly? Because I imagine this happens. I mean, this does happen all the time. You, you, let's say you're in a sales negotiation. The person you're speaking to sounds sounds great. Let me run it by my team. We'll we'll send it back over tonight, and then things you know things, things go away. Right? Things yeah. go away. What happened? Right? It's almost like that another negotiation had to take place that we weren't a part of. Right. Right. Well, so then uh, the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. First of all, you got to. To get your counterpart comfortable, you got to give them the illusion of control. That's principally going to come through how and what questions. How and what questions are very deferential. It's not that you got an answer. It's the effect you had when you asked. So the effect you want to have when you ask is like, how does everybody on your side feel about this? You know, how do the people that have to implement this, how do they see this? Now, your counterpart's going to be, oh, they're fine, they're fine, everything's good, everything's good. But the point was you asked the question would plants a seed in their mind. And then they're going to think twice about it. And you probably you need to ask those questions a couple of times, enough so that this person starts to think to themselves, you know, maybe I better double check because they think it's their idea. There's a little inception going on here. Remember that Leonardo mm -hmm. DiCaprio mm -hmm. movie, trying to plant a seed. You're plant, trying to plant a seed in their mind that the rest of their team is important. They have no idea that that's what you're doing. You're doing it deferentially, innocuously. As soon as they start going back to the people on their team, those people start to get looped in. You now begin to deal with your implementation issues. You're less likely to get single-threaded. So I, I don't even use, when you talk about this, you talk about like a mindset of discovery when you yeah. go into negotiations. Right. We, what do you mean by that? Is it really just trying to understand how are decisions made? You know who, who you know who's involved. Just try to try to gain clarity on the situation. Well, a couple of different things. First of all, the mindset of discovery is actually it's a hack for you. It's basically a positive frame of mind, and it's curious, and you can actually take in more information. You see things faster when you're in that mindset. You pull in more data your pattern recognition increases. All the things that go to higher mental performance. So first of all, if you have a mindset of discovery, you're going to be smarter. There's, you could easily argue probably at least 31% smarter, which is enough of an edge that if you're interested in edges, you're going to want it. Then the other thing too is, by definition, it's an asymmetric world. It's an imperfect world. We know we don't have all the information. Yet we act like we do. You know, there's never a negotiation where you're not holding stuff, close hold, holding stuff to the vest. There's never a time when you don't have cards that you're holding back. Well, if you're not doing that, then that means they get the same dynamic. So we intellectually know there's stuff that we don't know. Now, the crazy thing to really bend your mind around is what happens in the overlap. Because not only, since I don't know what they don't know, you know, the Donald Rumsfeld line, the unknown unknowns, but what's really sweet is when you hit the overlap and between the two of you, you discover stuff that if you're holding it back, it's important, which means you're going to get an exponential effect if you can uh, uncover it. Now, I imagine there's, there's people that, you know, are there people that can't be negotiated or reasoned with? Um. It's not that they can't be reasoned with. It's a little bit of what journey are they on to begin with? How scared are they? What, 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 what's really the goal? Like in, you know, in kidnapping negotiations, we had to recognize early on whether or not 
the goal was to actually kill the hostage. You know, the other side's on a killing journey. Um, and so you got to, they want you to be part of that. The best you could do is get out of the journey. If the best thing you could do is to disrupt, then you simply withdraw. So that's something like asocial violence, essentially. Right. So somebody walks into a, a movie theater, starts shooting up everyone. That, that's not a person interested in having a negotiation. Right, right. Or they're trying, they're orchestrating a different outcome. So in a business world, you don't really get that, but what you get is you get people that are so scared of the environment. Um, and this has happened in the healthcare space a lot these days. They're so scared of making any deal, they'll come to the table and all they do is call names. All they, all they are is insulting. You know, they're, they're overwhelmingly fear-driven. Now, you can get people out of that, but you got to recognize that, that that that's what's driving them. And then you got to find a way to really gently help them see that what they're doing is actually counterproductive to where they th say they're trying to go. I wanted to be in SWAT and I decided to make the switch to hostage negotiations because I had a recurring knee injury and I've, you know, I've had my knee <laughs> rebuilt a couple of times and we had hostage negotiators. I like crisis response. So I thought, you know, I could do that. How hard could that be? I talk to people all the time. I could talk to a terrorist. You know, we, I, I like to joke that the unofficial motto of the Voss family is how hard could it be? <laughs> Which is, you know, it's it's like the the in the U.S. we have a saying, uh, a redneck's famous last words are, hey, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Look, Chris, you said at the beginning, the devil is in the detail. And I really want people listening to this podcast to get detail from us about how they from the minute they turn off this podcast and go and buy your book, Never Split the Difference, how, from that moment, they can be better negotiators. What is the best way to do that? Should we role play? Do you want to explain to us the skills that are involved in negotiating? How do you normally work this kind of thing? Well, let the other side go first. And that's really hard to do because everybody wants to have their say. One of the things about negotiation is negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. How do you do that? You got to let them talk. So um, let's say you have a promotional event of mine. You want to do a promotional event with me. You, you, got, you got a whole game plan laid out. And um, you're a typical negotiator. You're worried about your budget. You're worried about the details. You want to be in control. Um, how would you start that? How would you normally start that? If you want to contact me about it make the deal i would call you and i'd say hey chris uh my name's jake i'm based in the uk i hear you've got a new book out never split the difference i i run a events agency in the uk and i would love the opportunity to share your story with people um across the pond how do you fancy that sounds like you had something specific in mind <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i absolutely do yeah i want to do a book tour around the uk um and I reckon we can sell out theatres. Um, and I've got some great contacts in the TV industry. So I reckon I can get you on to um, BBC Breakfast and Good Morning Britain. They're the two big early morning programmes over here. Um, what do you think? All right. So I'm going to stop right there. And I'm going to talk about what just happened. Yeah. Before you contacted me, whether you actually wrote it down or you're aware of it, you have an entire vision in your head. Vision drives decision. Now, there, there are a lot of times in negotiations where people are actually just contacting someone to get a competing bid. 
or they're looking to do due diligence. Like, let's say you want to do this whole book tour thing, but you want to do it with an equivalent author. There's somebody else with a business book out there. And you're dry running with me to see what I might be looking for. Which means the vision in your head does not include me. So my first saying sounds like you've got something in mind. It doesn't, I didn't say, what do you have in mind? Because there's a, any question puts people on guard to some degree. Now, what do you have in mind is a good, what we would refer to as a calibrated question. A lot of other people would call either an open-ended question or a reporter's question. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Reporter's interrogative. I ask that question if I want you to stop and think. It triggers what Danny Kahneman would refer to as in-depth, slow thinking. If in that moment I want you to stop and think and take a step back, I'll ask you what question. If instead I want to trigger a straight stream of consciousness, seems like sounds like you got something in mind, hits your brain in a completely different way. And it's much more likely to open up a direct downstream, unvarnished stream of consciousness of your thoughts. Now, there's no guarantee of success of any approach. I just want to use the stuff that's most likely to get the thinking out of you without exhausting you. I want you to give me a downstream that you're comfortable with, which simultaneously makes it me feel to you like I'm easy to work with. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were kind of praising me when you said to me, seems like you've got uh, something. In, I, I almost felt I had to tell you something because I almost felt like you'd or, you were already impressed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's all this additional emotional intelligence relationship building benefits that kind of come with this approach entirely. So can I flip it slightly because I'm intrigued by this approach. I want to go back to the angle Jake was talking about, but in relation to your days as a FBI negotiator, what would you do if somebody refused to play ball with you? So if somebody just refused to engage? Well, you know, that's part of the assessment of the process. Now, we'd probably start what we consider to be one-way dialogue because you refusing to answer back doesn't mean you're not listening. So if you're refusing to answer me back, what does that mean? What that means is you're scared. Your guard is up. You don't know if you could trust me. The future looks extremely uncertain to you. You're frozen. So that informs me as to now I'm going to start taking educated guesses you know, each one of these things sounds like is a label, looks like, feels like. Those are, those are educated guesses. You know, we, we have a scientific term for them. We call them swags. That's a scientific wild-ass guess. I'm going to take a scientific <laughs> wild-ass guess on what you're feeling. So I'm negotiating. We got a 27th floor of a high-rise in, a, in, a, in Harlem, in New York, in, uh, in the 90s. 
we have brought the circus to town. We got the SWAT team. We got up 27 floors in this high rise. I mean, the circus has come to town. We've made so much noise getting up there. We figure there's no way that these guys are not long gone because we brought the circus. We got elephants. We got trapeze artists. I mean, we make that much noise bringing an entire SWAT team and everybody to bear on this apartment. So I think we're talking to an empty apartment. I got two baby negotiators with me. They're still in training. I'm like, cool. This is rite of passage. Everybody talks to an empty apartment at some point in time. In point of fact, the fugitives are inside and they're heavily armed. And so I just say, look, I want you to know that I know you're scared. And I know you're worried about coming out. And I know you're worried about getting hurt when you're coming out. Here's what it's going to look like when you come out so that you don't get hurt. Because I said vision drives decision, right? I got to start putting a vision in their head of them coming out safely. So we're, we're talking to this empty apartment. I'm thoroughly convinced it's empty for six hours, six hours of this over and over and over. And six hours in, a sniper on an adjacent building says, I just saw a curtain move inside. And we all go like, holy cow, they really are in there. And so then I go, look, you know, we just saw the curtains move on the inside. One of you just looked out the window. I've been telling you for six hours, we're not going away. And that you're going to come out safe. 